So, this is the um, second in our new series of talks based on the Gospel of Mark. And last week we had an introduction from David, and this week I'm going to take us through the next few verses in chapter 1. Verses which give us a little overview of the preaching of Jesus. We're going to think about his key message and the responses that he got, especially from four people in particular. We're going to read the passage first, and then we'll have a closer look at what it's actually um, saying to us. So it's Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed and they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So that's our passage for this week. What can we learn from it? Well, the first thing which struck me is how much we can get from the first two verses. Um, if we look at verse 14 again, it seems to be saying just, um, or seems to be giving us rather, just a point in time, um, a background fact that Jesus started his ministry um, just after John the Baptist had been put in prison. But I think it's telling us a little bit more than that. Firstly, following on from what Mark has already written about John the Baptist, we begin this next section with, it seems, just a little note in verse 14, which shows us that John's ministry had come to an end as the ministry of Jesus had um, begun. Mark is presenting the ministry and the message of Jesus as a continuity from the preaching of John the Baptist. And as we've seen at the beginning of this chapter, when we looked at it last week, John's ministry and message is presented as a continuity from the Old Testament. His role and his message were what Isaiah spoke about hundreds of years earlier. John the Baptist saw himself as handing over the baton to Jesus. 
the one who would not only continue his message, but who would also be the fulfillment of that message. And David was telling us a bit about that last week as well. So the first point I just wanted to highlight is the continuity of God's message throughout the Bible. When Jesus started preaching, his message was new. It was radical. It got everyone talking about him. But his message wasn't a new idea. His message was a continuation of a message that we can see throughout the Old Testament, can't we? And that reminds us, doesn't it, that Jesus coming into the world was all part of God's eternal plan. As we know from verses like Ephesians 1 and 4, God chose us, or our salvation was planned, in other words, before the creation of this world, it says. So that's my first point, just about the continuity, I think, we see there. My second point, and it's related um, to the one about <coughs> continuity, and that's the exact um, content of the message. The Gospels often thought of as a call to faith, and so it is. But equally important, it's also a call to repentance. That's what John preached. We see it in verse 4. And as we've read today in verse 15, that's what Jesus preached also. John preached that people should repent and be baptised. And likewise, Jesus re uh, preached repent and believe. And we also know from John's gospel that Jesus also did baptising as well. The three things are closely linked, aren't they? Belief should lead to repentance, and the external evidence of that repentance includes baptism, which of course is our public testimony that we have changed direction and that we're going to follow uh, Jesus. I want to say something about repentance because it has been said that the Christian gospel has become too much about belief and not enough about repentance. Verses like John 3 and 16 um, are often quoted as key verses, and I've done it many times myself. Um, Whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm not taking anything away from that at all. But it does beg the question, what um, does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus, to believe the good news of the gospel. We know this is an issue with modern Christianity, I think, because there are so many people who would describe themselves as Christians, but who have lifestyles which are no different at all from the unbelievers who live around them. Now, some people might rely on their heritage. You know, my parents were Christians, I was brought up as a Christian, therefore, does that make me a Christian? Or um, they might rely on their social life. I go to Christian things. Um, I have Christian friends. Um, we like the same things. We disapprove of the same things. Does that make me a Christian? Some rely on their knowledge. Um, we all know a lot about the Bible, don't we? And we know about the language of the Bible and the stories of the Bible and we might know quite a bit about some of the doctrines of the Bible. So when we talk, we sound like a Christian. So we must be a Christian, yeah? 
And of course, we do believe in Jesus. We know who he is and what he said and what he did and why. And we know that he's, he's, he's coming back again. We know all of that. We believe it. But as we learn from James chapter 2, we can be a believer in the facts about Jesus, but not have the faith that saves us. And James teaches us that if our faith is genuine, if it's saving faith, there will also be works, good works. Not just things, good deeds for the benefit of others, but we'll have a way of life which is different to those who are not following Jesus. We'll have different values, we'll have different priorities. In other words, as I've already said, becoming a Christian is about going in a different direction to the one that we might otherwise have gone if we hadn't believed. And the reason we do that because, is because uh, along with our faith, we also have a deep sense of um, regret um, that we are not what God wants us to be. And that our sin has hurt and offended the God who loves us and uh, the God who wants us um, to come back to him and who wants to forgive us. A, a repentant believer is someone who cares about all of that, who cares about what their life is before God and is trying, often unsuccessfully, but is trying to live a better life before God regardless of the sins that we commit so often because of our old nature. And that's why the gospel of Jesus preached. His message to us all, not just the people who lived 2,000 years ago, is to repent and believe the good news. And that brings me to my third point um, I'd like to make from these two first two verses. And it's an important point when we... Um, start to think about how people responded to the message, those who did decide to follow Jesus. Um, my third point is this, the gospel message, which is summarized so briefly in verse 15, is a message which changes how people think. And it changes how people behave. And therefore, to many other people, that makes the gospel a dangerous message. Yes, the gospel was and is good news for the world, but it challenged the status quo, didn't it? It upset the authorities, religious leaders, lawmakers, people in charge, other people who profited from keeping things just the way they were. It undermined their authority. And that's not a small thing, is it? Think about what happens today to women living in Iran who refuse to wear a headscarf. Think about the... Um, response to pro-democracy protesters in countries like China. Think about what it is to be in Russia and even suggest quietly that maybe the war in Ukraine isn't a great idea. And as people began his public ministry, his preaching of a message that was a continuation of the gospel that John had preached, verse 14 mentions just briefly that John had been put in prison. And we know eventually John was executed. John was in prison because of the message that he preached. And Jesus was preaching a bigger version of that same message, a continuity of it. And anyone choosing to follow Jesus and to be a supporter of Jesus would surely know that they would face 
a similar, the risk of a similar outcome. So, there's quite a lot in those first two verses, isn't there? If I'm not reading too much into them. Let's move on now to verses 16 to 19. Here we're going to read, or we've read rather, about um, Jesus calling four men in particular to join his inner circle. And this was a special calling, something, I think, different to the initial call that we've been thinking about, um, the call that went out to everyone who was listening to repent and believe the good news. In fact, I think we can assume that uh, James, John, Simon and Andrew had already responded to that initial call. They had believed the good news that Jesus was preaching and they wanted to follow Jesus in the same way um, as um, many other people did. But now they were hearing a call to follow Jesus in a much more specific way. It was a call to action. It was a call to service. If we put our faith in Jesus, then every day, in the choices we make and the things that we do, we demonstrate whether or not we are a genuine follower of Jesus, don't we? But there may be times when Jesus calls us to a particular area of service. Um, there may even be times when Jesus calls us to make big choices that take our life in a completely different direction. Like those who are called to work as missionaries or other areas of full-time church service. Now that's a much bigger order of magnitude, isn't it? And we might want to think a little longer about that decision um, than it seems these four men did when Jesus called them. Is that wrong? To think carefully about how we might want to serve God if it involves a big decision? Or should we just act as soon as an idea comes into our heads? The first thing we should note is that these disciples didn't respond quite as quickly as Mark's Gospel seems to suggest. Because if we look in Luke 5 and John chapter 1, we haven't got time to, to go there, but if you look there, you'll see that there may have been other occasions when these same men were called and each account shows them responding to the call but maybe there was also just a little bit of faltering of, 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 of hesitation before they were fully committed. I think it's also worth recognising the huge significance of Jesus calling these four men in person with all the inherent authority that people were already acknowledging that he possessed. There was no mistaking what he was saying to them and there would be no mistaking later on in other things that he, he gave them to do. We see and hear Jesus only through the eyes and ears of faith. We hear his call through the words of scripture and the circumstances of our lives and the thoughts in our heads. All of which can be influenced by our misunderstandings, by wrong advice from other people and even by our own personal bias. I might think that God is calling me to follow the example of the, the Apostle Paul and tour the Mediterranean. Maybe I just want a holiday. You know, do you not see what my point I'm making? So to be clear, um, what I'm saying here is that the passage is describing two different types of call. The same two types of call that we can hear today. There was a call to repentance and faith. 
The most important call, and I think all four of the men we're reading about in these few verses, had already responded to that one. Um, as I think we all have in this church also. Um, but there was also a call to a particular avenue of service. And the way we discern if God is really calling us to do something in particular in our lives, and the amount of time we might um, spend deciding if it's something we should do, will be different for all of us, depending on the circumstances and how big the thing is that we feel God might want us to do. And none of that trivialises the value of serving God in our day-to-day -day lives without some big thing. Because it might just be that God's calling for us is just to serve him obediently uh, and, uh, and, and to live good, holy, honest lives um, and be a good witness to other people. So that, that might be the pinnacle of what God expects to us and that is tremendously valuable as well. But many people do feel a call to do something extra and if that is ever you, then do think about it carefully as I think we have um, an encouragement to do from the scriptures. All that said, I think it's worth noting that James, John, Simon and Andrew, once they had made their decision to go with Jesus, they were absolutely fully committed. They were willing to embrace the danger that they would face as associates of this radical preacher. And they were willing to leave behind everything that had been part of their lives, important part of their lives before, as um, Peter said on a, a later occasion, Simon, of course, became Peter. Uh, we read about it in Mark 10, um, when some many people who had believed and started following were starting to drift away, and Jesus asked his disciples, you know, are you going to go as well? And Peter replied, saying, we have left everything to follow you. Yeah, so that was, they, they, they were totally, totally committed. These men, of course, were destined to become the apostles and the leaders of the early church. So maybe that's why Jesus asked so much of them from the beginning. And you and I, as I say, might never be called to make such sacrifices. But I think that we can take from their example um, a lesson in commitment. In whatever we do for the Lord, we should do our very best, shouldn't we? And if we do need to make sacrifices, we should remember that when we choose to follow the Lord, we always gain far more than we might have to uh, give up. Or in the words of um, the missionary Jim Elliot, um, who was killed at the age of 28 preaching the gospel in Ecuador, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So we'll move on to the last section of our passage now, and this is all about the authority of the Lord Jesus. Um, let me just read two verses again, verse 21 and 22. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now we know that Jesus often taught in the synagogues of the towns that he visited, um, synagogues were set up about 400 years before Jesus, um, Je Jesus was teaching. Uh, they've been set up um, back then because it was recognised that actually Jerusalem and the temple was just too far away for most people, to, most Jews, to, to visit on a regular basis uh, for worship. So they had these synagogues and each 
Sabbath people would gather to worship and to be taught from the scriptures. But because these synagogues didn't have a permanent resident rabbi, um, it was normal for the synagogue leader to ask visiting teachers to speak. So this was a great opportunity that Jesus took advantage of to share his message. And while the Jewish leaders, um, Jewish, Jewish teachers, that was the cranberry moment, the Jewish teachers um, would often quote other well-known rabbis in order to lend authority to their teaching, the Lord Jesus didn't need to do that because he knew, of course, exactly what the scriptures said and more than that, he knew exactly what they meant. So he could preach with and teach with absolute confidence and authority. And I was wondering what on earth we could take away from this because, of course, Jesus preaching with authority doesn't amaze us like it did those people who heard him for the, the first time way back um, then. We know that apart from his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, Jesus also had an inherent authority, didn't it? Which came from him being the son of God. That came from being the one that Hebrews 1 and 3 describes as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being who sustains all things by his powerful words. The word that brought the creation into being is the words that these people in the synagogue were hearing spoken to them and no wonder they thought he spoke with amazing authority. Um, and we can see that the, the power associated with that authority in the way he healed the, um, the demon-possessed man that we read about at the end of the passage. I'm not going to um, spend any more time looking at that particular incident. Um, and we obviously don't have the same authority, do we, as the Lord Jesus? But we've been given the great commission of Matthew 28 to go and preach the gospel to others. So it would be great if there was something we could take from the Lord's example that might help us in our own witnessing. Is there anything there, I wonder? Well, I think the first thing that we know about Jesus, of course, is that, as I've already said, is that he knew the scriptures very well indeed. There is nothing that undermines someone's credibility and authority like not knowing what they're talking about. Um, so for us, I think it's just a case of making sure that we know the gospel as much as possible. And of course it takes time. Um, but the more that we know, the more we can explain it convincingly to others. And we don't need to know every doctrine in the Bible, do we? Far from it. But we should at least be able to do what it says in 1 Peter 3 and 15. Uh, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The second thing we know about the Lord Jesus is that there was nothing in his life which undermined his message. Hebrews 4 and 15 says he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now obviously, as even the Apostle Paul admitted, it is impossible to us, for us to live a life without sin because we still have that old nature which fights with our new nature, this inner battle that goes, goes on. But my point is that we should still, nonetheless, make every effort to live out what we preach. 
And thirdly, when we see Jesus preaching with all that authority that came from his divine being and his knowledge and his perfect life, we should be encouraged to know that when we preach in the world today or just share what we know with a friend or neighbour, we're preaching his message on his behalf. He is giving us authority to preach. You and I are ambassadors of the Lord. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God has committed to us the message. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. So if we're ever feeling a little bit nervous about sharing the gospel, um, we should take some confidence from the knowledge that the one who has ultimate authority is right there by our side. So my time's gone. Um, in summary, we've thought about the nature of the gospel, the core message that Jesus preached to repent and believe the good news. It was a message conceived before the earth was even created and it's a message that's come right down to you and me today. We thought about how people responded to that message and also how four men in particular responded to the Lord's call to service. And we might never be called to make such a big sacrifice as them, as I've said, um, but their commitment remains an example for us to follow in whatever we might do for the Lord. And finally, we've thought about the authority of the Lord Jesus um, and the authority that was evident in his teaching. And we've reminded ourselves that as ambassadors for the Lord, um, when we share the gospel, we speak on his behalf. And that gives us all the authority that we need.